So I realized uh, this morning after looking at the schedule that this is my last sermon for Hill City Church on my own. Um, the last four are going to be uh, Buzzy and Fred, and then I think we're going to kind of team teach the, uh, the final Sunday, kind of team comment, I think. But uh, I think Brett and I are done. Brett has done his last sermons for Hill City, and I'm about to do mine. And uh, it's an honor to have been a part of this group, to be able to have this opportunity. I appreciate your trust and your prayers. Uh, I've really appreciated uh, the team aspect of, the, of teaching. I've actually come to prefer it, that, um, that God's voice is not just necessarily from one person and uh, one perspective, which this series in Revelation has shown, but that it's um, from multiple perspectives and sources. One truth, uh, many eyes, ears, hands, voice, as the word says. Um, I wrestled over uh, what to do with this particular passage, because as you can see, there's a lot going on, both um, astonishing, wonderful, and gruesome. Um, So what I think I'm going to do is uh, just comment a little bit on some of the imagery here. I'm not going to do too much. But then I'm going to uh, uh, talk about two particular points that I see uh, from these two sections um, that I think we could all agree on. Uh, A lot of what I'm going to say uh, in this beginning part is highly influenced by um, uh, Michael Heiser and some of his thoughts. Um, If you're interested in knowing more... um, you should uh, look at his uh, Naked Bible podcast, uh, episodes 392 and 393. Yeah, they go in specifically into these passages of 1911 through 21 and 21 through 10. Um, one of the things I did not know this uh, about Revelation uh, when we first started going into it is how much of the Old Testament is literally sewn into the very words of Revelation. Uh, John, it's almost like John just rewrote large sections of the Old Testament. I mean, there are multiple books written about the Old Testament in Revelation, including by Heiser. Uh, There are several others, um, Bauckham. um, But it's really interesting. It's fascinating. So, uh, you have to have almost that kind of mindset, an Old Testament mindset, to, uh, to go into and have, uh, I think, some solid conclusions about some of this imagery from, from Revelation. Um, for, for example, in these two sections, uh, you have to read Ezekiel 38 to 39. That's the only other place in the Bible where Gog and Magog are talked about. 
So where did John get that phrase, those words? Well, Ezekiel. You have to read that. And it talks about the birds coming and gorging as well. Where did John get that? From the Old Testament. So you have to read that. You also have to read Daniel 7. And uh, to carry that in, as you, as you think and, and, and bring your mind to bear upon these ideas and these concepts. Um, the other thing, as I've said before from up front here, you very much have to enter Revelation not in linear sequence. You can't, you have to read it that way. This is where, count the number of thens. What John has written here, then this, then I saw, then this, after this, then, then. That's the way those imagery images perhaps came to him. But that's not necessarily the way they're going to play out. Remember I've said, you've got to look at it much like the way you would look at a painting or read uh, an epic poem uh, the Im- where imagery and words are used symbolically and for different ways. You're not going to be able to necessarily look at this sequentially. Um, there's this quote, actually I'll, one quote from Michael Heiser, who said um, this, that John in Revelation uh, chapters 16 through 20, so even starting back in 16 through 20, repurposes and utilizes the Gog-Magog elements in those chapters. John is describing the same conflict three or four different times in these chapters. It's recapitulation. John is recycling this material to describe the climactic conflict and defeat of the beast. He says this, We have to get away from this notion of we have a neat linear chronology. Basically, we don't. So, think back to the sevens. The seven um, horns, the seven bowls, the seven, was the lamp? I'm sorry. Um, they are communicated sequentially, but they happen parallel at the same time. And what uh, Heiser and I think this as well from this section after looking at it, 16 through 20, John is taking, or the uh, God is taking John to look at the same thing from different perspectives. And I was trying to think of an image that would best describe this. I want to use an artistic image and then I'm going to use an architectural kind of uh, history. Think of it like a painting. When my wife does paintings, and I've seen this with uh, other artists, including Mako, um, they put layer after layer. So they put one layer and then another layer and then another layer. They're putting layer after layer so that by the end of it, you're seeing the completed piece, but you're also seeing the various layers of that painting coming out, right? So if uh, what John, God is doing with John here, it's like he's going into one of the layers, he's bringing the layer out and he's laying it before John and saying, describe this layer. Now we would look at it and John would look at it and go, well, it, it looks like this, this, and it doesn't look like the completed thing, right? Because it's only one layer. Put it back in, take another layer out. Yeah, describe this layer. Well, this is what's happening. Okay, we'll take that. So when you put all these layers together, like the sevens, earlier in, in Revelation, and these chapters, he's describing individual layers. That's my uh, artistic example of what was going on here. Architectural. 
I grew up about a couple hours northeast of Washington, D.C., and so we did a lot of travel down to D.C., uh, whether it's for school trips, and I even did it when I was in New York uh, to accompany uh, Mako down to uh, basically lobby for art. How many have been to D.C.? I mean, okay. You know the mall, right? Okay, it's beautiful, like large yard, expanses of green. And all around the green are these beautiful buildings, whether modern or, or uh, old school federal. There's, at one end, there's the Washington Monument. Down next to that is the White House. On the other end is the Capitol. So it's, and they've been pretty, it's been pretty much that way since I was a kid. Uh, they've added the African American Museum. Uh, you have the Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian Castle. You have uh, the Museum of Natural History. You have the galleries, right? National Gallery East Wing, which is the modern monstrosity next to this old federal-looking building. So they all have been there for years. And what God is doing with John is like me taking you around the mall of Washington, D.C. Let's, let's go down to the monument, Washington Monument. Okay, let's stand there and let's look at our, around us. And I would say, describe what you see. And you'd see, and you'd be able to describe the Washington Monument. And then you could probably see the White House, so you could describe that. And then near that end is the Museum of Natural History. It's a bit closer. And then you could see the red clay, bricked, red-bricked building of the old castle, the Smithsonian. You could describe that. But then you could describe in detail what's going on around the Washington Monument. You could talk about the flags. You could talk about what signs are out, what the signs say. Now then I take you down to the other end, towards the Capitol. We're going away from the Washington Monument. And I say, describe what you see. And then you'd be able to describe in detail the Capitol because you're closer to it. Then I'd say, well, describe the Washington Monument. Well, and you wouldn't be able to describe the Washington Monument quite the way you did before, right? Because it's so far away. It's still there, but it's so far away. And then you turn around and say, well, there's Union Station. That's the train station that comes in and out of Washington, D.C. for people to travel in. That's a beautiful building, too. So you see what I'm saying? That's what, John, that's what God is doing with John with regards to this end times stuff. It doesn't change. It's not going to change. Jesus is coming back. I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the, the consequences of that in, in, in my two points. That's not changing. What is changing for John by God's guidance is his perspective and what he's seeing in one particular moment. Then I saw this. Then I saw that. After this I saw. So that's the way we need to look and continue to look at a book, especially this book of Revelation. And all this came out of uh, a notion when I read... My section. I was uh, originally supposed to just do this, the sermon on uh, chapter twenty-one through ten. That was originally what I was scheduled. But as you know, Buzzy got ill last week, and he could not do his section, which is nineteen eleven through twenty-one. So Fred got up to do his sermon from Matthew, which was great. We appreciate. Thank you for doing that, Fred. So we didn't hear what Buzzy's thoughts were going to be on chapter 19. And when I was going to prepare for this, I actually read back at, um, that little section and was looking forward to hearing what Buzzy had to say because right when I read that section in chapter 19 along with mine, I began to see patterns. 
Same kind of patterns. And though sadly we didn't get to hear what Buzzy had to say, we can still go into and look at what the scriptures say or seem to be saying to us in chapter 19. And that is these two patterns. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Because I think however we conclude about the eschaton, the end of the times, or however we are going to conclude in regards to that as far as with millennial views and things like that, Aside from that, we can agree on these two points. And the two things that I saw was this pattern of a hero with adversaries in both these sections. There's a hero, and then there's adversaries. And then I also saw how Christ wins. Christus victor. Jesus wins. That's what I mean by that. There's a lot of other theology wrapped up into that phrase. But when I say Christus Victor, I mean Jesus wins. In both these sections, it's clear. So we see the hero adversary uh, motif, and we also see Christ winning. He is the victor. So again, remember, if you go back in, and I would encourage you, please do this. Don't just hear the word today. Get into it. This week, read chapter Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Daniel 7 as you might ponder this. this In fact, get a book, one of the books, get Heiser's book, get one of the other books about the Old Testament revelation. It will help you. It it might answer some questions. It will generate more, which is a good thing because this is a living relationship to the living God. And this is his word. This is what he's saying to us. So this is ongoing. It's like a continual relationship. That will happen for eternity. So, let's jump in. This hero versus adversary. So, um, one of the observations is this hero adversary motif in uh, 1911 through 21 and 21 through 10. Let's see. Let me read that section of um, 11 through 16, chapter 19. Then I saw heaven... There's that word then. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven... Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here we have our hero. Clearly a very imposing and powerful figure. He's on a white horse. I had to look it up. A clear symbol of righteousness and purity. If you look up, white horses mean, generally mean in cross cultures, purity. Uh, usually associated with a god who is the god of the sun, of light. Uh, so the white horse in, in the history of humanity has had this symbolism of somebody who is Right. And good and true. So he's on a white horse. This rider is not only on this white horse, but he's called faithful and true. That's interesting. How did that, how did John see that? Was that like a neon sign? 
Faithful and true. But he is called faithful true. He has power to judge and make war. And his eyes are aflame. Does this sound familiar? Go back to chapter 1. Right? On his head are not just one crown, but many. Are those the one that we're going to throw at his feet? Perhaps he picked them up and put them on. Rightly so, he should. He has an army. They're also clothed in white. And they're on white horses as well. So it's like, here's the cavalry. And he has a sword coming from his mouth. In verse 16 and verse 13, we start to narrow in on who this figure is. So in this section, you have all these descriptions of our hero. But if you look at verse 16 and verse 13, and I'll take them in that order, you start to see who this person is. In verse 16 it says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Who else is that used for? God. This is God. The first writer is clearly God. Who else is King of all and any king? Who else is Lord of all and any Lord? That is God. Then in verse 13, we have an even narrower focus brought on of who this figure is. He is, verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So 16, he's not just God, but then he's kind of, he's got a robe, but that white robe is dipped in blood. This writer has seen adversity. There's blood on his robe. And he has another name. Not just the mysterious one, but he has, a, not, and not just the one king of kings, Lord of Lord, he's called the Word of God. Who else can this be? John 1. Gospel John, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made, made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is this figure? It's Jesus of Nazareth. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is God, because he is the word of God. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 6, when he says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who is the who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, same phrase, and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This white rider is Jesus. Well, what about the adver- adversary in this section of chapter 19? Let me read verses 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, the white rider, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in, the pre- in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. The adversary in this uh, section is made up of three figures. We have the beast, 
We have the kings of earth with their armies and the false prophet. That's We have a hero and adversaries. All of those three appear to be under the influence of Satan, or at the very least, whether physically or real or spiritually or real, are his ally. And in the end, all three meet a not-so-favorable end, certainly one that is not preferred by them. Both the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And verse 21 says very nonchalantly, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of the white rider. It's kind of like these two were thrown alive and the rest were killed. (laughs) So that's the hero adversary motif in this section. It is also in chapter 20, 1 through 10. Let's look closely at that. Right in the first two verses, we are told who the hero is and who one of the adversaries is. Reading from verse 1. Then, okay, so there's that previous one in 19 then, and here's another then. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. Here the hero is an angel coming from heaven. And the adversary is a dragon, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil himself. Later we see an additional adversary of this angel and the resurrected dead mentioned in verses 4 through 6. This adversary is Gog and Magog, who seem to be vast armies on the march. So like in the previous, like the previous enemies in chapter 19, it does not end well for any of these adversaries here. The armies are consumed by fire and the dragon or Satan is thrown into the lake of fire along behind where the beast and the false prophet were. What's interesting is, um, who is this angel? And they have the keys to the bottomless pit, to almost death to end Hades. Who is this? I think the angel is very well could be Jesus. Because in chapter 1, he says to John, I'm the living one. I have the key to death and Hades. And in the past, in other parts of uh, the Old Testament, the Son has appeared as an angel. The angel of the Lord is considered a physical manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, even if it isn't the angel, it's somebody Jesus has given that key to for an authoritative reason. So there's our hero. Our hero is the angel. Again, Chapter 19 is like we're at the Washington Monument, right? And we're looking at the mall. And we're looking around it, right? And we saw the white rider and horse. Then God takes John down to near the Capitol. And it's like he sees this. Oh, and then I saw this angel with this key coming down. So there we have the hero and the adversary. And it doesn't end well at all for anyone who is the enemy of these heroes, does it? In both sections we have hero or heroes faced by an adversary or several adversaries over which they prevail, very clearly prevail. There is no doubt what happens to them. And this is a satisfying thing to read, to hear about heroes and how they defeat evil, how they defeat enemies, where good wins over evil. This is a happy ending. So why is this so compelling? Why are the hero movies so popular today? Why are we always looking to find the right person to lead us, whether culturally or politically? When we call for change or even for justice, regardless of where you are culturally or politically, when you call for change or justice, 
you are calling for the heroic. You are calling for a hero. Why do we even look for the heroic in the ordinary, like the daily sacrifices of parent or family friend? We're always looking for the heroic. It's like it's bred into our DNA. Listen to the words of the cheesiest rock song from My Wife and I's Era, Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> Listen to these words. And again, it's a cheesy song, but it's kind of inspiring. It's like, I'm wrapped up in the cheese. Here are the words. Where have all the good men gone and where... You can hear the song, can't you? Where And where are all the gods, small g? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the end of the night. He's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the morning light. He's got to be sure, and it's got to be soon, and he's got to be larger than life. Larger than life. Do you think that's somebody that this white rider and this angel exemplifies? They're larger than life? I am the life, Jesus said. The hero adversary motif is compelling because we were made for it. There is something about it that comes from a deep and old desire of our humanity. One that has been there generations from even before we were born. Heroism is as old as time. I mean, look at the old stories, even ancient stories from Greece of Hercules, Gilgamesh, even as Gilgamesh, even though he was, he was an evil king, at some point he changes and becomes a hero. I mean, look at the Genesis 3 story of the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. After the deception and the dramatically poor choice of Adam and Eve, God comes in and to set things right, could he be a hero? Only he doesn't <coughs> completely set, uh, he doesn't completely restore Adam and Eve there. They live with their consequences, but in the curse that God pronounces on the adversary, on the enemy, on the serpent, he talks about a real hero to come and restore Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.15 he says that God says this to the serpent, to the enemy. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says to the adversary, a hero will come and defeat you. We want heroes. And we want to be heroes ourselves. I mean, that's why we... We want a hero, but we also want to be the hero, and we wish for both. Both are true. Though this second desire of wanting to be heroes, to be heroic ourselves, springs from an imperfect source, our very souls. I'm reminded of that moment in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo and Sam made it to Mount Doom. You remember, if you remember that story, it was about getting that ring and taking it to that volcano and throwing it in that lava so it melts and is destroyed, Okay. So we cho- they choose Frodo, and Sam goes along with Frodo. Both hobbits, Frodo, chosen especially for the task to be the hero, are small but determined. They trudge their way up to the caverns of Mount Doom. And Frodo and Sam approaching the edge as Frodo is going to cast the ring into the fire. This is what happens. I'll read from the book. There on the brink of the chasm, at the very crack of doom. So he's, he's a, he can do it. Just drop it in. You've made it. 
after everything, all the adversity. Be the hero. So he's on there, stood Frodo at the very crack of doom, stood Frodo, black against the glare, tense, erect, but still as if he had turned to stone. Master, cried Sam. Then Frodo stirred and spoke with a clear voice. Indeed, with a voice clearer and more powerful than Sam had ever heard him use. And it rose above the throb and turmoil of Mount Doom, ringing in the roof and walls. I have come, Frodo said. But I do not choose do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. And suddenly as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. Sam gasped, but he had no chance to cry out. Something struck Sam violently in the back. His legs were knocked from under him, and he was flung aside, striking his head against the stony floor. And a dark shape sprang over him. He lay still, and for a moment all went black. Sam got up. He was dazed and blood streaming from his head, dripped in his eyes. He groped forward, and then he saw a strange and terrible thing. Gollum, on the edge of the abyss, was fighting like a mad thing with an unseen foe. To and fro he swayed, now so near the brink, and that almost he tumbled in, now dragging back, falling to the ground, rising, falling again. And all the while he hissed, but spoke no words. The fires below awoke in anger. The red light blazed, and all the cavern was filled with a great glare and heat. Suddenly, Sam saw Gollum's long hands draw up, upwards to his mouth. His white fangs gleamed, and he snapped as they bit. Frodo gave a cry, and there he was, fallen upon his knees at the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as if, verily, it was wrought of living fire. Precious, precious. Precious, Gollum cried, my precious. And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, He stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek he fell. Out of the depths came one his last wail, precious, and he was gone. We want to be heroic like Frodo, but when we get to the edge to do the right thing, it crashes into selfishness, and our heroism fails. Sorry. Like Adam and Eve, we fail in our choices because we are broken, sinful. This is why our desire to be heroic finds its fulfillment in an actual hero who saves us. When Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, while on the cross, and three days later, rising out of the grave, he was placed in the, in the grave he was placed in, the hero of all times was revealed. And that hero didn't just complete the work of saving us from our sin. Or, he didn't just complete the work of saving us from our sin and our inability to be uh, heroic. He will finish it and victory in the end. And that brings me to the second observation. Christus, victor, Jesus wins. Again, not about the theological differences in the meaning of that word, Christus, victor. I simply mean Christ wins. In chapter 19, verses 20 and 21, it says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worship its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. 
and all the bird, bore, birds were gorged with their flesh. That's in chapter 19. Then in chapter 20 it says, And they, the enemies of God and his people, marched upon, uh, marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When you go up against God, the God of all creation, the one who is high and lifted up, the God of gods, the king of kings, there is only one outcome. The Apostle Paul wrote the vic- uh, of the victory in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though we may debate the specifics of the eschaton, the end times, there is no doubt here in the full conclusion, Jesus will win as he has already. Does that not revolt motivate you? It should. Certainly saying Jesus loses would not be motivating at all. It would be completely demotivating. Saying we're not sure if he wins or loses, we'll see, is just as depressing. But the win of Jesus is absolutely inspiring. And God was gracious enough to give us a taste of that victory with the resurrection. Imagine what it sounded like in Mary Magdalene's ear when Jesus said her name that morning of the resurrection. Uh, I wrote this about that, this poem about that very moment, called Sunday. The glow on the horizon, the slow herald of shadows withdrawal. Where have they taken my master, the one who has kept and held my heart? Waking eyes see nothing but salt and darkness. A name spoken echoes the one engraved in stone hands, filled with presence, weighted with love, all things sad and once untrue. And to close, let me read um, the poem, a poem by uh, Miho Oshio called The Walk to Emmaus. Remember, Emmaus is in after, uh, occurs after the resurrection where Jesus in, incognito appears to two followers, two of his followers, as they discuss and grieve what has occurred, trying to understand why the tomb was empty. And of course... Jesus keeps himself hidden until a particular moment. So this is Miho Shields, the walk to Emmaus. Things hadn't turned out right, and two disciples sift the whole affair while walking to Emmaus, which they stay, lay seven miles outside Jerusalem. Unrecognized now, Jesus joins the two. What is it you're engrossed in talk about? They look so sad as one of them replied, Are you the only one who doesn't know? About those things that have just happened? What things, he asked them. And they told him how the prophet Jesus, great in word and deed, before both God and them, was crucified. They'd thought he would redeem them, but he's dead. This morning women saw the tomb, but no, he's gone. An angel standing by his shroud has told them that he's alive, but still they grieve. How slow of heart you are. How slow of heart you are who can't believe All that the prophets in their time avowed, to reach his glory, Christ must undergo such things exactly as the scriptures said. And walking on that roadway, side by side, from Moses on, he showed them how to read, what prophecies foretold of him. But now Emmaus, where they had headed, is soon near. It's late, though Jesus makes it as if to go. 
Invited for a meal, he goes inside, and even now they haven't yet found out. But then so unexpectedly they knew. He broke and blessed the bread he gave to them. Awoken by this gesture that third day, they have recognized who had been there. He had already vanished from their sight. Brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged from these passages that Jesus clearly wins. And that should compel us to invite others to see that, to consider the reality of Jesus being the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who wins. We too, we grieve for the things of our world, perhaps like our brothers on the road to Emmaus, we, when we grie- they were grieving these things around Jesus' death and this resurrection, but they got to see him. They got to see him when he broke that bread because that was the symbol by which we are to remember him as we do communion. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this, uh, this morning. Thank you for... Thank you for being our hero and not just our hero. Thank you for showing us that you will win. Justice will come. It'll be even better justice than the one we desire even now. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be changed daily, moment by moment, by that knowledge, by that heroism of your part, and by the fact that you are the one who is victorious. We want to be changed by that. And Lord, may we offer that story, your story, the breaking of the bread, um, to others the offering of wine, the invitation to a feast, may we offer that to others around us who may not know you because it will be coming. You will be returning. You will be establishing your kingdom forever. And it will be for many, many more millennia than just one 1,000 year length. And we're so grateful for that. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.